Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiala Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I saw some blue sky today, so that's... Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. What was it like? <laughs> really <Blue>? weird and unexpected. <laughs> um, well, look, I thought we might start this week's show with a quotation drawn from an article in this week's paper written by Christopher Shrimpton. Uh, So it's an article about three recent reissues of novels by Barbara Cummins. And he says, Cummins, born 1907, died 1992, had an interesting life. As a child, she communicated with her deaf mother through notes left around the house. As a young woman, she studied art and married a struggling painter. She supported her husband and young children through a series of odd jobs, artist model, poodle breeder, piano restorer, antiques trader. When that marriage fell apart, she spent the war years with a roguish black marketeer named Arthur Price, which is, to interrupt myself, a perfect name for a black marketeer. It really is. It yeah, really you can is. have it for Arthur Price, Arthur exactly. Price. Exactly. It's yeah. so good. Anyway, then in 1945, she entered into a more conventional marriage with the civil servant Richard Strettle Commons Carr. With charming innocence, they honeymooned in the cottage of Richard's Whitehall colleague, Kim Philby, a delightful man, so funny. Later, Richard lost his job and they relocated to Spain for 15 years. Now, Lucy, does this not instantly make you want to find out everything there is to know about Barbara Cummins? It really does. And the the thing that leapt out at me, weirdly, was Poodle Breeder, because a lot of the rest of it... The piano restore is pretty impressive as well. There's just a couple where you go, well, you, you know, I, I might be able to make sense of most of this, but Poodle Breeder and Piano Restorer in, in among that list. That sounds fascinating. Well, hold on to that enthusiasm because coming up on this week's show, we will hear a new poem, A Brisk Villanelle by John Kinsella, and we'll speak to N. Liang Kong about fantasy urban landscapes portrayed in video games and anime films, the meticulous craft of building them, as well as the powerful pull of wandering them. But first, Barbara Cummings, because as well as a review I borrowed from earlier of those three reissued novels, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, Mr. Fox and House of Dolls, we are also looking this week into the role played by Graham Greene in shepherding Cummings' work into publication and the enduring affinity the pair seem to have enjoyed. Avril Horner, Emeritus Professor of English at Kingston University, has recently completed a biography of Barbara Cummings and she joins us on the line now to discuss the life and the work. And a quick warning, one of the works does involve a case of sexual assault. Avril, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. The life, as I hinted at earlier, was a a full one. It spanned most of the 20th century, for for starters. Um, And her role, her her route rather to novel writing, even before we get to Graham Greene's involvement, which we will come to, um, it wasn't exactly usual insofar as there is a usual in, in this sort of thing, I suppose. She wrote her first novel while working as a housekeeper, didn't she? 
Yes, that's right. Um, and she had a very haphazard education as a child. She was taught on and off by governesses, you know, who came and went. Um, she went away to school for a, a very short period. So her education was haphazard, but she was a voracious reader. She trained as an artist. Her main ambition when she was young was to be an artist. So she went to um, Stratford and Avon for, to art school for a brief period. And then um, when she inherited some money from her father on his death, she went to Heatherley's in London in Chelsea, which still exists. And she loved it there, but her money ran out. And uh, she got work as a young wife, um, and they were increasingly poor, in some commercial studios. She posed as an artist model. She worked with clay when she could get it. But it wasn't until really she was in her 30s working as a housekeeper, cook housekeeper, in a, um, a house in Hertfordshire that she decided she would try to write herself. She had tried earlier, but she'd thrown all the stuff away when she got married, um, thinking it was no good. But she thought she'd try again. And she, uh, because she had the two children with her, living with her as a housekeeper, they had a little cottage by the side of the big house. Um, she wrote in the evenings. She found an old typewriter there and started bashing out little vignettes to do with her childhood. And Sisters by a River was the first novel that was published, but not until 1947. She was writing it in 1940, 1941. And when you read it, it is very episodic. Um, you know, you, you can see, you can imagine her writing uh, one bit at a time in an evening when she could snatch a few hours before she's, she goes to sleep after a full day's work as a housekeeper. And what, what sort of novel is that? Well, most of her work draws quite heavily on her own life, but it's often made more fantastical and slightly more surreal. Uh, the only one I think that isn't, doesn't have any connection with her life at all is The House of Dolls. So it's based on it. She grew up in a village called Biddeford on Avon in Warwickshire, and it's, uh, it centres around a child who grows up in a village with several siblings, just like she had. She was one of six. Um, and it is... Uh, it, it's an amusing, it's a very funny novel, but it also has its dark side. You know, you see the funny side of village life, the eccentric characters and the sort of chaotic lifestyle of this upper middle class family who never have quite enough money in this rambling country house. But there's also a dark side. Um, some boys drown in the river and um, her father's boat knocks against the corpse one day. There's a sort of dark strain, a slightly dark strain there. And of course, when her parents, um, as they did in real life, become much harder up because the brewing business that gave her father his money began to go under, there's a lot of anguish because the child consents, as Barbara herself did, consents the parents' despair and their growing rows and arguments. And as in the novel, um, or in the memoir, one should call it really, in the memoir, she takes off in a little boat on the on the River Avon to find some peace and solitude sometimes. So it's a very, um, it's, a, it's a mixed book. And typically, like her later work, it's mixing um, humour, often slightly black humour, with dashes of the macabre, and that's a trademark of her work, really. Christopher Shrimpton, in his review of the three reissued novels this week, so he's, he's talking about who was changed and who was dead, uh, her third novel, and there's this character called Mervyn Dark, and he turns out to be a bit of a prig, he says, although the narrator had thought he was, he was really, you know, charming. He says that people are prone to these sudden changes in Barbara Cummings' work. So Mervyn resembles a raven. His nose was large and haughty. Yet when he smiles, he became one of the most handsome men I'd ever seen. But it only lasted a second. So there's all of this constant kind of fairy tale-like shape-shifting going on, all of these strange slippages. Yes, yes. Um, that That's right. And I mean, she... <laughs> She, she became suspicious as she got older of, of uh, sophisticated men who could seduce easily for, for good reason, really. It is this switch in tone, sometimes even with a, in, within a sentence or within a paragraph from what is apparently innocuous description or a light-hearted description to something more sinister that unsettles the reader. There's you often feel unsettled when you read Cummings because you're not quite ready for the unpredictable change that's coming next. It sounds um, it sounds like quite a bold style, especially is this true perhaps for a, a woman writing in the forties and fifties? It's it's yes, you know it's not cosy or anything any of those no, no. things that was expected at the time, is it? No, I think that's right. And of course, her novels had a very many of them had a very mixed reception, um, partly because of the style, but also because 
the content was often bold. I mean, in Now Spoons Came From Woolworths, which was um, only her second novel, she describes a woman going into labour and giving birth to her child in a, in a London hospital. Now, in those days, you know, we all take for granted the National Health Service now, but in those days, we're talking about the 1930s, women who had money went into a private hospital and they paid their doctor and they paid for their own medicines. If you went into what was effectively a charity hospital or a state hospital that dealt with the poor who could not pay. It was pretty grim. It was pretty grim. And she describes this in great detail. And sometimes it's funny. She finds herself sitting in a queue of, of people who are holding what she thinks are little glasses of lemonade. And she says, where could I get one of those? And they all laugh at her. And of course, what they're holding is urine samples. But it moves, from, <laughs> <laughs> it moves from that into a nurse telling her to have a bath. And, and because she's heavily pregnant, she's frightened that she might slip in the bath. So she just splashes herself and the nurse tells her she's a, she's a dirty woman. And then she's given castor oil and an enema and she ends up having an accident and she's told she's filthy. And then when she goes into labour, there's no there's no pain control, pain relief, and she ends up having her legs tied up in stirrups. And she thinks to herself, you wouldn't treat an animal like this. Now, at that time, it was quite rare to write about childbirth like that. You know, there were, there were a lot of cosy stuff in magazines, but not many... Uh, bleak descriptions of childbirth like that and of course her descriptions of poverty in her work are, are quite are quite shocking sometimes and she did experience poverty herself as a young woman and she was always frightened of falling into poverty again she talks in her letters um, about um, not wanting to fall into the poverty she calls it the poverty never wanting to have to meet the poverty again and of course you realize then that you know in those days when she was bringing up her own children no child benefits you know nothing like that um no family allowance nothing that all came much later and so she she scrabbles about for money especially when her first marriage breaks down i think she's she speaks to us more clearly now because, you know, we are much more aware of how women can slip into poverty. One of her characters, and this again is based on a trick um, experience in her life, goes to work in a nightclub to earn extra money, but soon realizes that this is the next step is prostitution. And so withdraws, but she, you know, she like some of her characters got very close to the edge sometimes. And how, how did she come to meet her, her second husband then her, um, the, the husband whose whose name she took, although that yeah. that in itself wasn't an easy decision either, was it? She yes. did want a pseudonym. <laughs> Richard Cummins Carl. She was always interested in art, even though she ended up being better known as a novelist. And she had some friends in the London group and um, they invited her to go with them one evening to the theatre in London in 1944. And uh, they introduced her um, to a friend of theirs called Richard Cummins Carr. And that's how they met. And he wrote to her, uh, he got her address from um, this mutual friend and wrote to her in the week saying, would she, you know, would she let him take her out for lunch? And it was a rather um, smart restaurant. So she said, yeah, she's always you know, keen to have a free meal. <laughs> she was a good one. Um, and she told her daughter at the time, he's rather grey, he's a rather grey man and didn't think it would go anywhere. But she was actually very charmed by him. He was a very uh, well-educated, man he'd been to Oxford he was you know working in the foreign office he wore very nice clothes he 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 smoked Subrani cigarettes which gave him an air of sophistication and she gradually began to warm to him and he quite clearly fell head over heels in love with her absolutely head over heels in love with her because there were some beautiful love letters to her and uh, in a way you know, he was the answer to a lot of her problems concerning security and um, instability and her fear of the poverty. So she went out with Richard Cummings' car for um, a year or so. And in fact, he moved into the, uh, a flat at the top of the house that she was, she was in at the time. And um, uh, on the day of her, the day she got her final divorce papers in August 1945, that morning she had three proposals. Uh, one from an old friend called Francis Codd, who had known her first husband, one from Arthur Price, her black market racketeer lover, and one from Richard Cummins' car, and she accepted Richard Cummins' car. And from thereafter, her life changed quite dramatically, as you can imagine. She started moving in different, quite a different uh, circle of people um, and 
found the respectability that she craved. I mean, I have to say that her faith that Richard would provide her with financial security wasn't particularly well-founded. He, um, Actually, people who worked for MI6 and MI5 in those days weren't paid extraordinary sums of money. Um, it was somehow expected that people who took up that sort of work had private allowances. Now, Richard did have a private allowance, but it wasn't huge, and he was not very good with money, as later events in their life turned out to, to prove. But he gave her a sense of and respectability and she obviously was very very fond of him and the marriage lasted lasted until he died and it's through Richard of course in the MI6 connection that yes. Graham Greene comes into the story yes yes it was through Richard Cummings car that she met Graham Greene because they both worked um from 43 onwards for a while in section five um of MI6 where Kim Philby was the deputy head so there were they were quite a a tight close-knit circle you know there were a couple of others uh, but they worked together and obviously Graham Greene and Richard Cummings car got on very well. And the first book that consolidated their their relationship I suppose as as eventually editor um, yeah. and and writer was was one called The Long White Dress although it didn't end up being named that in the end. No that's right and um, she was writing under the title The Long White Dress because the heroine I, I won't uh, give any spoilers but the heroine at the end of the novel wears a long white dress and it's a very powerful arresting ending to a novel but he, as you saw from my article he he thought it was a wishy-washy title which didn't mean anything he suggested it be renamed The Vet's Daughter which she was quite happy with and it is indeed a much better title because most of the novel is taken up with her um, her life at home with her father, who is a vet, but he's a cruel man in many ways, and who her mother was di is dying at the beginning of the novel, and it's quite clear that her father really puts her mother to sleep, like he would an animal with an injection. You know, it's quite dark, dark stuff, and um, it's one of the few novels that has a really tragic end. You know, most of her novels have a, a slight uplift at the end because at heart she was quite an optimistic person. But The Vet's Daughter is, is a tragic novel, although it has its very comic moments. There are four novels which I would describe as, as gothic, really. That one, The Skin Chairs, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, and... Um, uh, the juniper tree, they've all got quite strong gothic elements. Some of the others are, are much more realistic. Our spoons came from wars, um, a touch of mistletoe, um, you know, some of the others, are, uh, Mr. Fox, are much more realistic, uh, but those four are really quite dark. I'm sort of trying to tidy her into, into a general area in, in, in yeah. my imaginary shelf system <laughs> in my head, and I'm, I'm sort of, she sounds somewhere between kind of Barbara Pym and Irene Handel or something. Kind of with the with the humour and and the social observation, but this kind of darker yes. gothic. Yes, yes, with darker gothic tones, um, and a cap quite capable of de of describing real suffering and poignancy in a paragraph after a paragraph that's been quite amusing. You know that that shift in tone is very distinctive. I think Graham Greene was he was um, and he, I mean he did help her with her work and, and edited her as well, didn't he? And they it, they seem to have he liked that quality that peculiar yes, quality and thought it was rather timeless didn't he yes he did and I think they both share um as I said in my in my piece a, a fascination with the dark side of life they do it in different ways you know but Green was very good at portraying guilt despair crises of faith you know the dark side of human nature um as well as other things I think they have had that in common and they bought, both also have a fairly plain style you know they're not modernist writers and they are not um Baroque writers and they don't have a very ornate style. They both seem to like quite a plain style. And Barbara Cummins um, was very influenced by uh, Moll Flanders. Moll Flanders remained her favourite novel throughout her life. And I think it's partly to do with style. She admired Defoe's plain style, but also one suspects she identified a little bit with Moll Flanders. You know, a beautiful woman, and Barbara Cummings was beautiful, a beautiful woman who's, who has, has a series of, you know, bad luck things happening to her has to become resourceful. And I have to say, you know, in some ways, Barbara Cummings was not only like Mont Flanders, but she's got a bit of Becky Sharp about her as well. When you, hopefully when the book is published, you'll see, you know, there's there's a bit of Becky Sharp in, in Barbara when she has to become, well, I wouldn't say inventive in order to survive. And as you, I mean, as you make abundantly clear in your fascinating piece, the, the relationship with Green, it, it lasted, you know, some 40 years and it wasn't always switched on. You know, there would be periods of, 
of, of silence, but then, you know, 10 years would pass sometimes and then yeah. a letter would come from him almost out of the blue. Yes. So there was clearly a tremendous sense of, of, of loyalty and interest, I suppose. Yes. Um, yes. One, one place in which this didn't quite come off was that, that Graham Greene was not a fan of the House of Dolls, was he? That's Which right. Is now taken to be one of one of her best novels, I think. Well, I think it's found its moment. I'm, you, I'm, in fact, I know people who don't like it much and think it's not her best, but I think it's quite an accomplished novel and a very amusing and entertaining one. Again, it's a more realist novel, although although some of the circumstances are no doubt exaggerated. But at the heart of that story is poverty and women again. It's about um, you know women in their late fifties and sixties who have uh, because they haven't had um, haven't got a pension or they haven't been left money by their husbands or they were never married, suddenly find that they're actually finding it very, very hard to make ends meet. And, you know, we have decent pensions. Women have decent pensions now, not quite quite as good as they should be, perhaps, but better than then. You know, it's very hard in those days if you didn't have a husband or a a pension or someone left you money sometimes to make ends meet as you got older and weren't working. And one of the women in this house is a Spanish woman who shows them the ropes, how to entice older gentlemen um, you know, in for the evening and and earn some money that way. Now, when you read the novel, you learn that this Spanish woman herself was raped as a young girl. And she was only a girl. She was sent away by her parents to work in someone's house. And the man there raped her. And after that, her parents want nothing to do with her. And she falls into that way of life because there is no other choice. You know, she works in a butcher shop a bit, but she can't make ends meet that way. So underneath the comedy of of The House of Dolls, there are quite dark stories again. And I'm not entirely sure why Green didn't like it. He did, you know, the reason he gave was that it, it lacks distancing and Barbara didn't know what that meant and I'm not entirely sure either. Barbara wrote to a friend in England saying Graham thinks it lacks distancing but I don't know what that means rather for Lorne. He may, as I say Michael, he might have found it rather distasteful. Um, he perhaps only saw the frivolity in the comedy and didn't see that the, you know what really are social messages underneath about women and money and women in poverty. Um, but no, for whatever reason he didn't like it and that, that badly upset her as we know. And so in the end, it, um, it took Carmen Khalil and Virago to come along and, yes. and bring that one out. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, well, uh, yeah, yes, I mean, Carmen Khalil uh, didn't actually bring the House of Dolls out, but she revived interest in Barbara by reprinting several of her books in the 1980s. Uh, the House of Dolls laid fallow for many years because Barbara lost faith in it. Mr. Fox, which was written in the 40s, laid fallow for many years, stuck on the agent shelf. It was only after The Juniper Tree was published in 1985, uh, and that was about the same time that Virago, in their modern classic series, were reissuing Barbara's novels, that suddenly interest picked up in her. Methuen published The Juniper Tree and asked her if she, if she had any more books, and she said, well, she's got two that never found a publisher, Mr. Fox and The House of Dolls, and it was Methuen who first published The House of Dolls. So they weren't published, those two novels, until 1987 and 1989. Um, so, you know, she, she only lived till she, uh, until 1992, so it was at the very end of her writing life that these two novels that seemed to have got lost and nobody liked suddenly found their moment. That must have been a tremendous feeling for her, though. It seems like, you know, periodically uh, through her life, she suffered these crises of confidence in her own work and yes. uh, and, and would and would just let it drop and, and, yes. and banish it from her own sight. And to then, yeah. you know, the year before she died to have that kind of validation. Yes, yes, must yes. Have been wonderful. She was enormously pleased and she liked to earn money. You know, she when she couldn't uh, get a full-time job, she'd earn money through all sorts of resourceful projects. She hated the thought of the poverty again. Mm. So what she, what she earned through her writing was important to her as well. Um, I was just going to say, can't, I think, can't the TLS take a little bit of credit? I think, didn't <laughs> Carmen, not, not very much, I think. Didn't Carmen Khalil write in the TLS about the Virago project and then Graham Greene saw that? Am yes. I just remembering that to our own aggrandizement or is that actually true? No, no, it's true. She wrote <laughs> an article true. called uh, Virago Reprints, I think. It's called in 1980, and Green read it while he was in France. I've read the article, and it's about the modern classics 
um, series. You know, it's about why Virago wants to retrieve women writers, and it's about why not all great classics should be male writers. You know, she wanted to open, and as we all know, it's a wonderful series. You know, I've got plenty of Greenback Virago um, modern classic books on my shelves, um, and it was a huge success that project. And uh, it was actually John Johnson, Barbara's agent, who caught wind of this uh, Virago modern classics series and sent her two or three of Barbara's books and and Carmen Khalil read them and she wanted to she was immediately sure she wanted to reprint the vet's daughter but soon after that Graham Greene wrote to her having seen her article in the TLS while he was abroad saying would you please consider Barbara Cummins in the, for this series because I think she's very good indeed those letters from Graham Greene and Carmen Khalil's faith in her restored her faith in herself so much so that she then set work on her last novel when she was in her 70s and that was the juniper tree that was the very last novel she wrote and I think it's one of her best and well then on a on a on a parting note is that uh, kind of counterintuitively because it's her final novel but is that where you would recommend that the newcomer to to Barbara Cummins begin Barbara Cummings is like Marmite, I think. My experience with book groups is you either love her or you can't be doing with her at all. I would probably start with The Vet's Daughter. If you want to like read Sisters by a River, which is quirky, a quirky memoir, The Vet's Daughter, I think I would probably start with, and then perhaps The Juniper Tree, and then work back into the other, some of the other stuff. Mr. Fox is a great novel about the war, living in the war. There are, there are plenty to start with. Avril Horner, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Still to come on the show, a new poem by John Kinsella and En Liang Kong on the familiar, unfamiliar cities of video games and anime films. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via Apple Podcasts or pretty much any podcast provider, and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thiele Narduzzi, and before we roam cities of the imagination, we have a new poem by John Kinsella with an altogether more rural setting, Villanelle of star picket-hopping Red Cap Robin. With John being deep in the Western Australian bush at the moment, the time difference has thwarted our attempts to do this live, as it were. But so as we listen to this recording he has kindly made for us, we can at least imagine him looking out on the beast-coloured land he captures so well, perhaps with his small winged friend in attendance. The water tanker has been and delivered, and I can risk a good spray of the hose on a 37-degree day. A red-cap robin plunges into the mist and frisks. It's not a long burst into the drought garden's bisque longing, but long enough to offset heat and dry and length of day. 
the water tanker has been and delivered, and I can take the risk. And as the water dies from its spectra, the form and the ray of asterisks that mark moments in soil around aubergine and bok choy, a red-capped robin emerges from the mist and frisks. Now perched on the chiasmus of star picket, with feather licks poking up from its tousled cap, blow-dried by breeze through late sunray, the water tanker has been and delivered, and I can enjoy the risk. All world closes in as we separate off, and the red-capped robin risks as well by hopping another picket closer, studying me, a red-capped robin that emerged from the mist of frisks. I hold out my finger, thinking it will bond with my burlesque of melding inner and outer selves with nature's lay, as the water tanker has been and delivered, and I can risk a red-capped robin plunging into the mist as I frisk. John Kinsella reading his poem Villanelle of Star Picket Hopping Red Capped Robin. His memoir, Displaced a Rural Life, was published last year. This week, one of our contributors, En Liang Kong, asks a heartfelt question. Under successive lockdowns and with museums and galleries shuttered, what else is there for an art critic to do but fire up the PlayStation? And this is not so he can tell us his high score on The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, at least I don't think it is, but because he's been thinking about architecture and urban space in video games and anime and has reviewed two books on the subject for us, Virtual Cities and Atlas and Exploration of Video Game Cities and Anime Architecture, Imagined Worlds and Endless Megacities. And many thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You make a simple and brilliant point early on in your piece, uh, which I hadn't thought about it that way around, that a game designer, video game designer, when uh, when they're designing, they start from nothing. They might have some, there might be some technical limitations, but basically, unlike a real architect or designer, there's no geography to take into account, no climate, no assumptions about anything, even gravity. Is this a relatively new kind of design freedom, do you think? I mean, I think, yes, yeah, so I think it's um, it's been this evolving thing. The book is by um, this game urbanist and designer called Konstantinos Stolopoulos, uh, Virtual Cities, where he unravels um, the spatial design of video games. So he's a, he's a level designer. So he creates uh, a game's levels, its stages, its missions. Um, and this is, you know, essentially the creation of, of a virtual space from scratch. It's mapping it. It's determining the environmental conditions. It's setting down the rules. And, you know, quite early on in the book, um, he gives this example of um, there's a steampunk game called Thief the Dark Project, which dates back to the, the late 1990s. Um, and this is where you learn to navigate a world as a thief. It's one, it was actually one of the first PC games to deploy the physics of light and sound. And, and the way it does that is, is to push you towards this tactic of ev evasion, which is over the years has, has birthed actually a, a, a genre called the stealth genre within video games. What does that actually mean? Like, I mean, what are we talking about here? Is it because it's a, it's a particular way of, of moving your character through this world? Yeah, I, I describe it as thinking in terms of a verb. So you, you're creeping along rather than running, or maybe shadows will provide you with shelter, um, or maybe moving across carpet is a safer bet than risking, you know, noisy stone flooring. You know, I think the task for a games designer is to produce these, you know, these, these vast, imagined and possible spaces, and you know, increasingly vast in, in these days, um, in which you as the player can suspend your disbelief, and, and yet at the same time you're sort of feeling yourself within the space. Um, and, and the reality of, the, of those game mechanics are, are bonding you, the player, um, to this unreal space of the city. If this isn't too... Uh, wishy-washy a question. I mean, what, what is the effect, do you think, on you of wandering these kind of familiar, unfamiliar landscapes? I mean, how does it, how does it make you feel? Does, it, does the unreal feed back into the real? Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question. And, and, you know, especially in lockdown, <laughs> there's a sense of liberation because you can easily, easily end up spending more time in these places than in the in, in real life world <laughs> these days. Um, yeah, and I mean, I find in video games, the, you know, the narrative force is existing not only on the, on the level of the plot, but there's also sort of the weight of the agency. So the architecture is existing not only as decoration or costume, but to sort of channel your imagination as well and it feels quite interesting in an age when you know so often we 
get from A to B without ever looking up from, you know, your phone, the GPS marker on your, on your, on your mobile phone screen. In these spaces, I think we're sort of always reminded of the directional force that architecture can have. Yes, I was going to say that because there is this freedom for them to design whatever they want, but the environment must be affected by the narrative of the game, must be bound by that. So if it's a shooter or, as you say, if it's a stealth game or an open world, there, there is that constraint on it, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 an incre- sort of incredible level of detail that that they place into these games, sort of riffing off um, all kinds of sort of in real world locations as well. So you know, you mentioned that I've been spending a lot of um, a lot of lockdown playing The Witcher, which is this game that kind of blends sort of the architecture of the Middle Ages and Central European mythology, and it's a place of such sort of careful detail that. Um, you know, there's, there's a city called the Free City of Novigrad, which um, Demopolis also explores in his book, which is so complete that it comes, it, it even comes with this vast functioning hinterland with its own economy, um, supplying food for the city. So you could go to the pub in Novigrad, whereas you can't in real life kind of thing. All the time, yeah. And then, yeah. You, <laughs> you, even play, you know, you can, you can sort of play cards with people. So the city, um, yeah, you're right that there's that, you know, that, that the ways in which I suppose the plot level interacts with the that kind of um, these kind of mechanics that are engaging effect and emotion um, is is one of the ways in which makes this you know I suppose the design of video games so compelling. So he he discusses another another game, um, Dark Souls, which dates back to 2011. has become quite legendary for being incredibly difficult, and he describes how it you know it sort of draws you into this. He describes it as a medieval armored version of parkour over sort of narrow buttresses, roofs and ledges. He's, I think, trying to unravel the, 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 the laws of these vast interactive worlds and what their in-game mechanics are, are, are doing to us. I think um, just, just to pick up on what you said about, the, um, about how it affects you, particularly in lockdown, this is a, a slight aside because this is not about urban, this is about the natural stuff. Here's a confession. I've been playing a bit of Breath of the Wild, which I'm very, very bad at. But it's an amazing game. Amazing. <laughs> but it's just I'm struck by the beauty of it. And and I tell you what I was doing, you because you can wander through fields and the grass moves with you. And what I loved about it was that it's got weather in. So so you know, you you've got the sun and and sometimes it gets rainy and you can just sort of it felt a little bit like you could go to this beautiful landscape and wander about and experience the weather and, and do some very, in my case, ineffective sort of fighting of beasties or whoever I was supposed to be fighting. But it does it does make you feel as though you've been somewhere, doesn't it? <laughs> so are you just laughing at me straight out? <laughs> no, it's just it's just the realization of of this is where we are now. <laughs> yeah. That is how that is how we will travel. Can you choose the weather? More to the point. No, that's no. You can't. So you don't have control. You can't escape on a on a sunny break. No, you can't specify. Like, <laughs> no, well, you probably can. I mean, not not on this game. You can't, but you probably can on others. You can probably. I mean, there's a, you can you could do whatever you want. Yeah, that is the amazing thing about Breath of the Wild that you can. I mean, it has its own sort of narrative and plot where you're you know you're sort of going off and saving a princess, but you can also spend enormous amounts of time or just the entire time wandering around. You know sort of looking at the clouds which are are amazing mm, that's um, what i do because i'm very bad at the game <laughs> yeah the, the um there's the scholar alfie bound calls this sort of playing against the grain so um you know there are people who might enter a very violent role-playing game like hitman um and then spend your entire time admiring and inspecting the architecture rather than assassinating people yes i like that idea and that often happens doesn't it um you you're also as well as talking about the um specifically about video game architecture you also look at anime architecture which also of course uh, is in games and you say that the the film of Blade Runner is very influential the first the first film of it and I saw that the designer Sid Mead uh, only died around a year ago do you think that style uh, Black Blade Runner style has had a significant effect on on visual culture generally? I mean the most anticipated video game of um, of last year was CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077, um, which obviously you know takes com- completely takes its cues from from Blade Runner. Uh, in fact, sometimes in, in in slightly more disturbing ways. So a lot of the a lot of the criticism that it received on upon release was the way it it's like you know channeled the cyberpunk genre's 
original anxieties around race and the dawn of the Asian century. So we can sort of think about Blade Runner's very Japanified Los Angeles and the context of, um, you know, fears over a booming Japanese economy. Um, and in Cyberpunk 2077, Asian American gangsters roam this Californian night city with incredibly thick accents, wielding katanas. Oh, really? Um, and you've got a villainous Japanese megacorp, Arasaka, which is looming, mm. looming large over the landscape. So, I, you know, I, I thought that was quite interesting because it suggests that while this world building is, you know, incredibly uh, impressive and immersive, it's not without its overreach as well. But it, well, it very much it depends how you do it, doesn't it? And it depends, A, a what style you do and what, what uh, aim you do it. And if what you do is include stereotypes, then you're just, I suppose, porting them over from the real world, as it were, which um, it didn't go down very well, did it? It was a disaster, Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, it was met with um, a sort of near instantaneous sort of barrage of complaints yeah. on release, <laughs> because there are, there are lots of videos online of, um, all the bugs still flowing through the system. So you, you have sort of anatomically disturbing genitalia and dead bodies performing creepy acrobatics. Um, and there's that one- That sounds video. really horrible. <laughs> there's one video of a man um, displaying his, his bare bosom while careering down this futuristic highway. Um, so yes, it's, I think it's instigated a lot of soul searching within the, the, the industry as to, you know, perhaps building such expensive, grandiose, ever-expanding open worlds is, is unsustainable. Mm. Um, another uh, example of uh, one of these early and very influential stories, which has existed in various um, media, is Ghost in the Shell. Uh, and you quote its creator as saying that the drama is just the surface of the film, the backgrounds are the director's vision of reality. Um, and the second book that you uh, review, it shows the kind of infinite care and attention paid to creating those backgrounds and that depth, doesn't it? Yes, this is um, anime architecture, a portfolio basically put together by the Berlin-based curator Stefan Rikelis. Um, and he first began visiting animation film studios in Tokyo more than a decade ago um, and he discovered these crates which were stuffed with cyberpunk sketches and paintings and basically the offcuts of anime artists um, and so his book is a is a portfolio of the cityscapes that we we see in Japanese anime so his eye is not on the on the film's protagonists but the high rises and back streets that lie behind them um, and so, yeah, you, you quote Mamoru Oshii, the, the director of, of Ghost in the Shell, and he calls it this silent world behind the characters. Um, and in his films, you, you, you notice the camera motion slowing down to give a sense of weight to these backgrounds. And quite often the, 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 the cities in both, I think, in both anime and video games, it's quite often inspiration is taken from real cities, isn't there? And, and also real juxtapositions of class and history, that mm. thing about the poor people are living at ground level and the rich are, are up high and never touch the earth. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in both genres, you know, architecture is used to immediately establish this socio-political order. So it can suggest anarchism or authoritarianism or dystopianism um, and in these in these anime cities um, they they often map the architecture of class so in Rick Keller's book you, you can see production backgrounds for the 1988 film Akira so these are painted onto superimposed celluloid acetate and paper and they show rubbish strewn alleys gazing up at luminous skyscrapers in the distance and then he will sort of have ramen bars casting this pink purplish glow of which multiple photographic exposures are then taken to create, say, the blurred vision of a, of a wounded man staggering through an alleyway. And they also appropriate the real world. So a lot of um, Mamoru Oshii's films draw on the, on the forgotten imperial waterways of Tokyo, for which he would you know, engage on sort of long scouting expeditions, uh, taking... Uh, black and white photography, or in Ghost in the Shell, famously the you know the sprawling neon billboards of this fictional Newport city come from Hong Kong, and 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 there's this sort of tension between in the film between the old town and this new district of high rises, which 
you know, even today you could be, you could read it as, and, and many have has read it as a cipher for Hong Kong's crisis of identity as the mainland encroaches ever further. Yeah, that's another a, a sort of visual um, a visual representation of of a, of a kind of anxiety. Yeah, that's that, that's right. I mean, it, it, you you find it again and again. So the also sort of portrayed in, in the book is this Hideaki Anno's uh, neon genesis of Evangelion uh, franchise, where the the city becomes this almost militarized robot, um, and Rickelis points out that the that these quite toy time like designs were themselves very influenced by another uh, Japanese genre, these tokusatsu films, which where they employed quite, you know, these militarized diorama aesthetics um, and mechanical and optical effects are deployed mid-shot rather than post-production. So it's these monsters and superheroes played by actors in costume laying ruin to a, a miniature city while locked in combat, um, as best exemplified by Ishiro Hondo's 1954 Godzilla, and I think it's worth noting that, you know, Ishiro Honzu himself witnessed the ruins of Hiroshima when, as a former prisoner of war in 1946, he journeyed home from China. So a lot of these cities appear to be caught up in, in conflict from, from birth. Mm. It's interesting as well how that would create such a, uh, such a specific relation between the body and the space in, in a way that you, you you can't imagine it's possible to replicate without, you know, being in whatever costume it is that you're in, but actually walking around made spaces in that way. Yeah, I mean, Anno describes this, he, he says it's a sort of shrunken aesthetic injecting this alien quality to the, um, to, to the imagined city, which is always, in these films, are always on the verge of disintegration and sort of going back to you know talking about life in lockdown it's again it's that sort of peculiar mix of both the extremely familiar and also the alien and I think it gives these films um and and the video games I've been playing these these cityscapes um which are all about the alien and the familiar this sort of peculiar kind of um resonance and they, the, the examples that we're quoting, um, they, the cities often seem like quite dark or quite violent places, but that's not all that's on offer, is it? There is, in some other games, like No Man's Sky, for instance, you can, there's room for the players to express themselves and, and build things. And in No Man's Sky, you, I think you can build your own base and then just kind of wander around, can't you? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there, there's a huge amount of um, agency I suppose given to you, you know, you're learning to navigate these these vast interactive worlds um, on your own terms as well. And I think, you know, it's going back to like I, I suppose both of these books also they really admire um, the worlds beyond, so the, the world building beyond the beyond the the level of the plots, which is you know you can spend enormous amounts of time, uh, enormous amounts of time in, and it's also been you know really rich terrain for for all kinds of other art as well. One of my um, sort of favorite artworks is this piece by the artist Cory Archangel, which he made sort of almost two decades ago called Super Mario Clouds, where he essentially hacked a copy of Nintendo's Super Mario Bros and stripped out every single graphical element until all that's left are these clouds scrolling across the blue sky. And you, know, you can spend hours looking at this. Mm, that sounds like a very nice um, antidote, actually, to <laughs> everything going on. Um, and finally, I am tempted finally to ask what your high score is, but I'm not going to do that. And what I'm really going to do is say whether whether we're familiar with the games or not, which which of the games um, or or anime would you would you recommend people have a look at to have to have a really good example of some of this very deep and sort of visually stimulating architecture? I think The Witch is fantastic for the, the ways in which it, it blends this sort of very funny kind of deadpan camp and horror and middle age architecture. Um, and I think, you know, it's I, I, spending a lot of time playing it. I just thought that it really it really gives you an insight, insight into the very sort of distinctive world building. It's the, the forms and language that essentially, you know, video games potential to offer what other art forms cannot. Um, and I think, you know, especially in, in these days, yeah, where museums and galleries shuttered, I'd often, I've often been thinking about, you know, in times of crisis, what kinds of, what kinds of art do we turn to? 
And it turns out the kinds of art are video games. Yes, it looks like and anime. <laughs> and anime. Well, but also I do think there is, is there's something about the immersion in it, isn't there, as well, that's um, sort of uh, stimulating. Yes, and uh, you know we often um, sort of turn to these quite sort of post-apocalyptic imaginaries as well. Um, that's the sort of theme that runs through a lot of the a lot of the sort of 1980s anime and particular video games that these two authors pick out um, and they're often speaking to specific um, historical things so a lot of the, a lot of um, these anime directors are, I think are often speaking to the traumas within Japan's cultural psyche so these these cities and these endless expanding cities and and also sort of endless violence as well and I think it's you know that this is running through sort of the, the history of um, animation it's 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 no surprise that 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 these films would want to try and acquaint us with with a sort of central truth of what it what it means to be human that'll do that's a, a, a central truth of what it means to be human we're not going to get much um much deeper than that i think today <laughs> thank you very much Hen, for talking to us thank you bye-bye That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Avril Horner, John Kinsella and En Liang Kong. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, ex-Special Forces soldier and best-selling novelist Andy McNabb talks candidly about growing up with his adopted family, his time in juvenile detention, and how he finally found his home in the British Army. You're responsible for yourself, whether you're a six-year-old or whether you're 96-year-old, you're responsible for yourself. So suck it all up and just get out there. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Andy McNabb in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.